I thought it would be good to start with a story. It's always good to start with a story. I had planned another beginning, which I'll tell you later when I get up to the other beginning, but <clears throat> I decided I decided it's always good to start with a story. And then I was thinking um, I should explain the point of the story, but then if I, if I have to explain the point of the story, it's a worthless story. So it should make its own point. So here's the story. A few months ago, I... Uh, decided to uh, fly down to Orange County. I live here in Marin County. And that I would make a day trip and fly down to Orange County and uh, visit my son's mother-in-law, who was gravely ill. And uh, we've been friends for more than 30 years. And uh, so I, I went down to spend the day with her. And I had to, I took a very early flight so I needed to uh, drive to the airporter very early in the morning and take the bus to the airporter and all of that. And I got to the airport and I had a boarding pass because I'd already printed that out the night before. So I went straight to the security and I didn't. I thought I'm going to go right through because I didn't have any luggage. I was just going and coming. And I come to the security and they say, uh, this flight has been delayed. And they don't know when the boarding time, when it, if it, when it's going to board. So I, I all of a sudden I felt like I was going to start to cry, and I realized that I was really more uh, moved about the fact that Noemi was as sick as she was, and that this was probably going to be the last time I was going to see her. And I started to cry, and I so automatically because it's my practice. I said to myself, may I meet this moment fully? May I meet it as a friend? May I meet this moment fully? May I meet it as a friend? And um, just realizing that I'm sad because she's really quite sick. And when I remembered how much I, thinking about how much I loved her, that calmed me down a little bit and I felt okay. And then I see that on the, on the board where it's got the flight times, it now has erased that flight altogether, and the, and it's been canceled. So I again I feel bad, and I tried to go to the uh, pass the security, and they say, "Well, this flight is canceled. You have to go and get on another flight." So I said, "Well, I'll go through." They said, "No, no, you have to go over there." I said, "Well, how do I do that?" And they wave me in the direction. Of, so you go over there on that line, and I see it's an amazingly long line. And I see over here that the next flight to Orange County is in 40 minutes. I'm never going to get on that line and go through that whole line and come. So I'm planning to go through and get to the gate. So I said, well, listen, maybe I can change my boarding pass. At the gate. You have to go at the end of that line. And so anger started to arise in me. And I said to myself, may I meet this moment fully? May I meet it as a friend? I was mad. And I also didn't think that she was very... Um, Polite. I'm an old woman. Just wave over there. Go over there and get on the line. You could be a little bit more explicit. You could say, I'll help you out, whatever. And I really feel a little hmm, huffy about that. May I meet this moment fully? May I meet it as a friend? I, as a friend, I realize everybody's in the same trouble. I go and I get on the line, and the person in the front of me uh, have a little conversation. What What are you trying to get on? What are you trying to get on? I'm trying to get on the next one if I get up there in time. She said, you know, if you uh, phone the airline, because it's a long line, she said, phone the airline. If you phone the airline, you can probably get them faster than you'll get up to the agent. So then I had the phone, and then I had my um, I had my phone, but I didn't have my glasses out, and I couldn't read the number. Anyway, I phoned the airline. And uh, I get uh, a recorded announcement that tells me that they're very glad to have my call, which is very important to them, and that I should keep on holding. And they'll be with me momentarily. And I'm standing on the line, and I'm standing on the line, and they're not with me momentarily. I'm standing and standing, and I'm getting really unhappy. And may I meet this moment fully? May I meet it as a friend? And then I, at some point, I realized... I'm tired. I'm really sad about knowing. I looked around and I thought, I don't know what all these other people are doing here, but they have places that they need to be to. And they're also late for their planes and they're also unhappy. 
May we all meet this moment fully. May we all meet it as friends. I finally get up to the agent just when they say, yes, can I help you? So now I hang up here and I deal with the agent who tells me that all the flights that day have now been canceled because of thunderstorms and they rebooked me for the next day. And I left the airport. Now the airport, a bus was right there and I thought, ah, and I got on the bus, and I thought about the storms that had gone through my mind in the last hour, in the last couple of hours, going and coming and feeling badly about, no, Amy, may I meet this moment fully? May I meet it as a friend? I realized that, you know, the mind calms down, and I think, you know, things happen, you know. There were thunderstorms. They can't do anything about that. And no, Amy's sick, and really tragically, and can't do anything about that. You can't do anything but think about we're all in this trouble of it's a difficult world and, and there is suffering and loss. There's loss all over the place and suffering. And to wish myself well and everybody else well and to keep on doing it. It's been a wonderful practice for me. And in case you didn't get the point of the whole story, <laughs> the point of the whole story is that we bless in order to restore the equanimity in the mind. May I meet this moment fully, may I meet it as a friend, means may I not fight with this moment. May I bring balance and ease to it. May I meet it as a friend, may I meet it with warm-heartedness. And the meeting itself is conducive to wisdom. Everybody was having their planes canceled, not just me. And people all around are losing people. And it's wonderful to love people. All the simple things that really constitute the basic wisdom of life really emerge when the mind settles down. And how lovely that this agent had fixed me up for the very next day so that I could go and visit her. I think that the restoring the mind to equanimity so that wisdom is present is really what we're doing here all the time. That the wisdom that's present is the wisdom that things pass. Things arise and pass away. That's the nature of, of life. That suffering is the extra tension in the mind when it's unable to accommodate the truth of the moment. Suffering is a strange word to translate into English because we use it so much to mean a lot of pain, we say so-and-so had a lot of pain and suffering. And in common parlance, it more means a lot of pain. But in in terms of dukkha, from the, the Buddha's, un, my understanding of what the Buddha meant with dukkha, by dukkha and the end of it, is the extra pain in the mind that isn't able to say, that's life, this is what happens. It's not what I wanted, but it's what I got. It happened because things happen in this natural world. When the mind is able to rebalance itself, I love the word equanimity. It's like it doesn't mean tranquility like this. It doesn't even mean serenity. It means it can keep its balance. It can regain its balance because we're getting startled all the time. It's startled by an email, startled by the news, and startled by the radio, and startled by the telephone. How many times have we, each of us in our lives, picked up the telephone and had some terrible piece of news? And you feel like the floor is going to fall out from under you. But we all put it together after some time, and we went on. And when we go on and learn from it, things happen, we manage and for me, I think the important thing is that it develops in, I certainly see it in me, that uh, I would say one of the, one of the uh, principal ways that I describe the benefit of my practice over these many decades is that I say I'm kinder. And uh, my husband, my, sometimes this is a morning conversation, you don't have anything else to say after so many years. He says, so... <laughs> How are you different still after all these years of practice? And, and I say, I became kind. And he said, no, no, you were always kind. And that's probably somewhat true. I came from kind people. But it's really true that I became kinder. 
that to myself, I catch faster that I'm not being kind to myself. And I realize that, you know, I, I, it's always that I'm in pain and that the response to pain that makes any sense at all is compassion. And that's true of everybody else as well. Anybody who's suffering, we're all suffering, is worthy of compassion. We're all doing the best we can. We become more sensitive and more compassionate. So I think that the 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 um, uh, equation that I see in my mind is that insight uh, about. Uh, the passage of things about time passes and we lose everything that's important to us unless it loses us first. We lose things because of time. We lose our youth and our vitality and our our health and the people who are dear to us or they lose us and our dreams. And we are really always accommodating, getting used to. I, I see that my I, I, it, this ought to be a video because I keep on making motions that mean getting your balance, whether they're from bicycling or from skiing or something. But that's what we're doing. We're trying to stay balanced in in the face of the inevitable changes in this life and to do it with a kind heart, because everybody is doing that. Where I was going to start before I thought about telling the story, is I was going to start, because it's so dramatic, by saying, poisons and weapons and fire won't harm you. Because that's one of the 11 benefits, presumed benefits of metta. So did you see it on the... People who practice metta sleep peacefully, wake peacefully, dream peaceful dreams. People love them. Angels love them. Angels will, will protect them. Poisons and weapons and fire won't harm them. Their faces are clear. Their minds are serene. They die unconfused. And when they die, their rebirth is in heavenly realms. If you could choose one, when I just said them, did you pick out one more than the other? Yeah? You got one? Yes? No? I was going to tell you about when I do this game with other people, but if I might as well do it with you. You want to hear them once more? So you pick out one. Sleep peacefully, wake peacefully, dream peaceful dreams. People love them. Angels love them. Angels will protect them. Poisons and weapons and fire won't harm them. Their faces are clear, their minds are serene, they die unconfused, and when they die, their rebirth is in heavenly realms. Okay? You get one of them. <laughs> okay, everybody knows what they're choosing? No changing now. Okay, that's it. So I'm going to say it again, and you put up your hand for your one. Okay? Okay. Here we go. People who practice metta sleep peacefully, wake peacefully, Dream peaceful dreams. People love them. Angels love them. Angels will protect them. Poisons and weapons and fire won't harm them. (laughs) Their faces are clear. Their minds are serene. They die unconfused. And when they die, their rebirth is in heavenly realms. So nobody chose the poisons and the weapons and the fire. (laughs) That's like one of those ads where they show you somebody driving a truck off the side of a cliff or something, and it says, do not do this at home. (laughs) So I, I, I think it's a metaphor. I don't think it means, literally, do not try it at home, do not test it. I think it means that your capacity, that our capacity, that the innate human capacity to love no matter what and to bless this moment no matter what is inviolate. I think that's the part of us that really is invulnerable, that if there's something about us, poisons and weapons and fire, I think, will really... The physical body can't do that. 
But the heart body, I think, has the capacity in any circumstance to radiate love on behalf of other people, but on behalf of its own solace. That's really, I think, the, the, the bottom line promise that in any situation in one's life we can be disappointed and be all right. That when I first realized early on in my practice that I didn't have to be pleased in order to be happy, I was amazed that happy didn't mean pleased. It meant okay. It actually means to me more wise than it means pleased. That's the way it is. It's like that. You know, there are a couple of wonderful Buddha stories that are just such great images we should... I thought I wanted to tell them just because this retreat might go by and I wouldn't have told them, and you might not know it. You know, it's said of the Buddha that on the night of his enlightenment, when he sat down and said, I'm just now sitting here determined to understand the cause of suffering and through that the end of suffering, that he sat down determined, and he radiated out from him the strongest loving-kindness, the strongest metta that you could imagine a Buddha radiating all around him. And in the pictures, the the depictions of it, it it always looks kind of like uh, surrounded by some kind of protective shield. But I love it, especially when you see the the drawings in... um, Children's coloring books, they're really beautiful because here's this serene Buddha with a shield around. And it's said in the narrative of this image that all of the forces of disruption of the mind that assailed human beings assailed him. Fearful images and angry images, and they're shown in the drawings as... um, armies of attacking armies with spears and and uh, arrows galloping in that might uh, frighten a person and uh, cause their mind to storm up in fear. But here's the Buddha radiating out loving kindness. And here come erotic images that might in fact seduce the mind of the soon-to-be Buddha into erotic fantasies. But not him, he just sits there. And all together, I I thought about it when I was thinking about this yesterday, could we say that all of the afflictive mind states that, that we can imagine, that what we talked about and everybody has outlined, of feeling the mind out of energy, feeling the mind too restless with energy, feeling the mind bewildered and lustful and angry and everything else that causes the mind to dust itself up and storm up and not be able to see clearly and not remember the truth of things and not be able to beam out loving kindness. All of those things assail the Buddha and he sits and he beams out loving kindness. And it's said that all of these forces that potentially could seduce him into confusion Here they are all attacking him, and all the spears and arrows and every other confusing assailant turns into a flower when it meets that shield and falls on the ground. And it's wonderful in a coloring book with all these flowers all over the place. It said in various narratives that the world shook and flowers were all over the whole world because all of the difficulties of life were turned into flowers because he kept his immovable heart of goodwill. And I, you know, I think it's a metaphor, but I think it's a splendid metaphor that we could, in fact, make our hearts so filled with loving kindness that it would protect us from harm and it would keep us at ease. It's said in those narratives that here comes the the leader of the forces of um, anger and uh, Mara, personified as Mara, that the Buddha puts his hand on the ground and says, I have a right to be here. And he says to Mara, I see your armies, Mara, and I am not afraid. I think there's hardly a phrase that we can think of in English that is more potent than I am not afraid. You know, I think fundamentally that we are wired to 
react to things that are frightening, so we take care of ourselves. But imagine to go through life and say, I'm not afraid. I'm just really not afraid. There was a very famous uh, Zen story that uh, it's fun to tell. I remember hearing it the first time about a particular Zen master whose uh, serenity and clarity and wisdom was so profound that um, at some point uh, in the era of uh, warring clans uh, was um, informed that a, a team of warring samurai were approaching his monastery and uh, all the monks fled because they were afraid. And the story is that he sat uh, in the meditation hall on his meditation place and uh, that they arrived and the monks had all fled and the chief of the warriors came in and saw the Zen master sitting and brandished his sword and said, don't you know that I'm the sort of person who could run you through with my sword? without batting an eye, to which the master replied, and I, sir, am the sort of man that could be run through by a sword without batting an eye. And it's said that that particular warrior lay down his sword and became his student. I think it's a wonderful story. You know, when I first heard it, it must be 30 years now, I thought, well... I'm never going to be able to do that. (laughs) And I don't know. In those circumstances, I don't know if I can do that. But, you know, uh, I've had several friends die in the last three years. And they the several friends that I'm thinking about it, they didn't say I can be run through by a sword, but they, they behaved with such consummate grace. They didn't make it more difficult for themselves or for anybody else. My friend Tamara was dying, and uh, I wasn't with her. She was in a hospice in Florida, and I was calling her every day. And by and by, we got up to a day when she couldn't lift the phone. And uh, I got the nurse in the hall, and she said, uh, Tamara can't hold the phone anymore. And I said, could you go in and hold her phone for her? And so she went in and held the phone, and we had a conversation, and she said, this is so hard to do, Sylvia. And I said, well, I I know, sweetheart, but you're soon there. And she said, I know. Uh, She said, wait, hold on a minute. She said, the nurses are adjusting my blankets on the bed. The nurses here are so wonderful. They've been so kind. They've been so good. I thought to myself... I want to be able to end not only not fighting about it, but being thankful for what's happening and thankful for my situation. I remember as a young person reading Dylan Thomas about rage, rage against the dying of the light. And I thought to myself, I don't want to do that. I think that we don't have to do it that way. I think there's another way. Like that Zen master. I don't know, you know... uh, I like to think that that Zen master could be run through by a sword because, in with equanimity, because he saw that that was what was going to happen. And here comes a, a, a warrior who kills people with swords, and he's either going to kill him or not. And his choice is to choose peace in that moment. And tomorrow's choice was to choose peace. My friend Noemi... My friend Noemi, who I went down and visited in Orange County, uh, was my son's mother-in-law. And so I've known her for more than 30 years. And uh, she was a person in her life. Well, I, I realized I wanted to tell you this story because I wanted to say you don't have to be a Zen master with decades of practice. Some people have it figured out without the decades of practice. So when uh, my son 
met the woman that he married, and it looked like it was a serious thing. Uh, we went down to Orange County to meet the parents of uh, his fiance, and when I went down to visit Noemi in uh, just in June or July, when I saw her, uh, I told her the story. I said, "You know, um, when we came down that day thirty years ago, thirty-two years ago." And just to meet you and Roberto, as if we were standing in this very kitchen and looking out the window, and the rest of the family was to arrive, and you were fixing some food, and you were looking out the window, and you said, "Oh, here comes my daughter Natalia. She is wonderful. You're going to love Natalia. She's so gifted. She has such a lively, wonderful spirit. She's so charming. You're going to love Natalia." And then she arrives, and oh, here comes my son Jorge. Jorge is great. You'll see, he has a son, a soul of a poet. He's wonderful. You're going to love Jorge. He's great. And then a little while later, she says, oh, here comes my sister-in-law, Myrna. You know, Myrna, she's had a really difficult life. Myrna can be sometimes a little bit difficult, but you know, she's had a really difficult life. Things really didn't go well for her. And I realized two things at that moment. I realized that Noemi was determined, and it turned out to be true, to paint everybody in her mind in a good story. And if the immediate story wasn't so good, she made a bigger story around it that could hold it in a good light because she only had people that she could say, oh, here comes. And it's, uh, that was number one, that I saw that that was her habit. And number two, I thought to myself, Peter is in a really good shape. If... <laughs> If the apple does not fall far from the tree, he's going to do well with this woman. And when I went down to visit her in July and she was dying, not a single bad word about, I'm so upset about dying, or I'm sad about dying, or I wish I was here longer, or I would have liked to see great-grandchildren, not a single word. I could think of all kinds of things. I, I might, I don't know. We looked at photos of 30 years ago at a wedding that at the wedding that we were both at. And she delighted in them. She said, look at us. We were so beautiful. We were so young. And look at them. They were so young. So I don't think you have to be a Zen master. But I think that's a human capacity to meet every moment as a friend wisely. You don't even have to have heard of the Buddha. Some people do it. Noemi's sister, Greta, who I'd never met before, was there. And I said, Greta, I told about I, that particular trait of making everything in a, in a, in a lovable fashion. And I said, uh, did she always do that? She said, yeah, she always did that. She was born that way. We're not born that way, most of us. Most of us have to like work at it a little bit. But this is a practice that works at it. Really, not because it arm wrestles the mind to the ground, but because it allows it again and again and again to see this is the only thing that makes sense. This is the only thing that doesn't add difficulty to life. Now, let me add really one very difficult thing that happened. Her son Jorge died when he was 21 years old in a motorcycle accident. And she was profoundly grief-stricken. And it's important for me to tell you that. I mean, that having the capacity to love or to try to love everything is not does not mean that you don't grieve intensely when you grieve. You grieve and you grieve. My sense is that Somehow her mind held wisdom in it firmly enough that then she did the next 30 years. And we didn't talk about Jorge all the time, but we talked about which of her grandchildren looks like him, and we enjoyed who has a poetic soul and whether it came from Jorge. That particular practice of may I meet this moment fully, may I meet it as a friend, the practice of equanimity, 
to hold in it the truth of, it's just really three simple truths. Things change. You can't hold on to anything. And the changes are, by and large, out of our control. I mean, we can try to live skillfully, but... The particular uh, understanding about being able to accept things as they are. Some people have that uh, as a as a um, a blessing that they say to themselves: "May I accept things as they are? May I accept myself just as I am?" And Donald told that sweet story about himself at war and or, and Sharon as well saying whoa clumsy but i you know i love you you know how to keep ourselves how to keep it clear enough in my mind that i'm not unkind to myself i think that a lot maybe all or mostly sometimes i do a formal metta practice and i think of this one or that one or the other one but mostly I am paying attention to the presence or absence of goodwill in my own mind. And when my mind starts to growl because it's unhappy about something. That particular uh, rubric of may I meet this moment fully, may I meet it as a friend, I think of as the, um, like sometimes you buy a detergent that it says on the bottle, this is good for all surfaces, glass, wood, this, that, the other. It's like an all-purpose detergent that for any of the hindrances, there, you know, there are particular um, uh, responses to afflictive energies that you can talk about or bring to mind, loving kindness for anger and uh, um uh, keener attention for sleepiness. There are different kinds of particular um, antidotes to afflictive energies. I think this is the the one antidote fits all antidote. Because fundamentally it says, may I be wise. May I meet this moment fully. May I meet it as a friend. If you think about it, everything else is unwise. Everything else makes trouble for yourself. I don't. This is this is kind of a. Uh, it's an ethnic image that just floated up my mind, and maybe you have to be. Maybe you have to be my ethnicity to to get it, but uh, there's such a thing called gefilte fish. It's a kind of a ground poached fish balls, and it has an a background is is uh, Eastern Europe, and you have to have a taste for that kind of poached fish balls, and people notably make it for uh, family dinners on Passover. And the condiment that goes with that ground fish ball is a horseradish, usually horseradish with beet coloring in it. And one of my grandchildren on one notable year following my instruction to place the fish on the lettuce on this big tray and then put a spoonful of this purple horseradish on each one, said, I never really understood before that you could make a terrible thing worse. <laughs> but... <laughs> so you don't have to be ethnic to get that. <laughs> But that's actually what it is, you know. I mean, I, I, I really feel a little bit awkward having put the Buddha in the same sentence with the gefilte fish. But, <laughs> but really, what, what the essence of all of these teachings about suffering and the end of suffering is that things happen; they are way beyond our control. And we can, we have two possibilities. We can either say, uh, "Okay, this is happening. I wonder what's going to happen next." and meet the next moment with kindness, with compassion, with interest, with, with intimacy, with the desire to see it clearly and respond wisely. That's what we're called upon to do moment to moment. Otherwise we make things worse. And things happen, you know, that um, 
One of my friends who died after, uh, several of my friends died of pancreas cancer. And my friend Martha said to me, in the time that she was sick, she said, you know, I think to myself a lot, why me? I, I, I feel so angry about it, and it's not fair, and I'm not that old, and I have nothing else the matter with me, and my health is vigorous, and... Uh, she had just married her partner of 25 years the month before she was diagnosed. She said, why me? Why now? Why me? Why now? And she said, oh, when I think, why me? I really, really suffer. And then she said, suddenly, I'll think to myself, why not me? People get pancreas cancer. It's one of the things that happens in the world. I, you know, I wish it wasn't me, but it is me. And she said, I'm not any happier about dying of pancreas cancer when I realize that, but I don't suffer so much. It's the suffering is the, mm, why me? This shouldn't be happening. It is happening. To be able to be able to say, this isn't what I wanted, but it's what I got. And you don't know, you really, I keep being awed by um, the third of the three pieces of wisdom that the Buddha said, this is what you get to know, that things pass, they arise, pass away, that suffering is the uh, insistence in the mind that things be different, and that things happen because other things happened, that things are um, lawful. You know, I, I'm fond of telling people that when I first heard Joseph Goldstein, who speaks with a very New York um, accent in his voice, said that. He said it's a lawful cosmos. And I thought he said it's an awful cosmos. <laughs> and uh, it was a period of my life that I was really quite in a depressed and gloomy mood. So I thought he was right. You know, but, uh, <laughs> I then figured out that what he meant, it's a, it's a lawful cosmos. Things happen because other things happen. Not only climate changes happen because we use that we use resources wrong or unwisely. We didn't know better. But things happen because other things happen. And some of the things that are sequelae turn out to be unfortunate, and some of the sequelae of everything turn out to be fortunate, and you don't know. One, uh, one of the, the, the stories that I like to remember, one of the events in time that I like to remember has to do with the sequelae of the uh, Indonesian volcano Mount Tambora erupting in April of 1815. 90,000 people died in the area of the of that area of Indonesia. It remains the biggest eruption in recorded history. Millions of tons of volcanic ash were blasted into the Earth's upper atmosphere, forming an aerosol veil that shut out solar radiation across Europe and North America. The sun disappeared, rainfall increased, average temperatures fell several degrees, probably the most dramatic incident of global cooling the world has ever known. Social ramifications were immense. In New England, there were blizzards in July. Many farmers were wiped out, prompting the, both the rapid settlement of New York and expansion into the Midwest. In Ireland, 65,000 people starved to death. In England, there were food riots and dramatic, and the dramatic colors. I, I'm always touched by, I, it always catches my voice because this is in one sentence. In England, there were food riots and the dramatic colors of the dust-laden sunsets inspired the young landscape artist J.M.W. Turner. Byron wrote his poem, Darkness. In Switzerland, the endless winter moved the 18-year-old Mary Shelley to write Frankenstein. In 1816, known as the year without a summer, the harvest failed across the Western world. The role of the price of oats was then something like the price of oil today. In southern Germany, famine prevailed, and farmers who could no longer afford oats to feed their horses shot them. An eccentric German aristocrat, 
Baron Karl von Dreis de Sauerbrunn, a former student of mathematics at Heidelberg University and inventor, witnessed the slaughter. Without horsepower, society faced an even graver crisis. Inspired by necessity, Dreis realized a dream as old as mankind. He conceived a mechanical horse with wheels. The Dreisine was invented in 1817. It was the first prototype bicycle. It was known as a lauf machine, a running machine. It comprised two wooden carriage wheels in line, a wooden bench which the rider straddled, and an elementary steering system. You didn't pedal. You propelled it by scooting or paddling your feet along the ground. Traveling downhill or at speed, you lifted both feet off the ground. It was original. No one had previously put a pair of wheels in a line on a frame and made fundamental use of the precept of the bicycle, balanced by steering. It was thought then that without your feet on the ground, you'd fall over. The dracing taught humanity that you can balance on two wheels in a line if and only if you can steer. And it goes on to talk about one of the big unanswered questions in the history of the bicycle is why, when technology had made it feasible for at least 3,500 years, did the Lauf machine take so long to invent? A hypothesis is that no one believed you could actually balance two inline wheels. And maybe it wouldn't have happened if the volcano hadn't erupted right then. There's an expression in uh, that often comes up in discussions of karma, why things happen when they do. And it says, they happen when they do because the necessary and sufficient conditions have been met for it to happen. Maybe they had wheels before that, but maybe the necessary and sufficient condition was a lack of draft animals. And Baron von Dreis and his psyche, everything that was... Uh, invented. When you think about it, I think that um, who was it made penicillin? Mm. Mm. No, 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 no. Fleming made penicillin? Anyway, by tomorrow the faithful Google will tell me. But somebody noticed mold. Mold on bread, I think and mold on bread in a Petri dish with some sort of bacteria that the bacteria didn't survive. Somebody has to notice, hmm. Somebody has to say, hmm, look at that. It has to be enough other material around and knowledge behind it to say, make the next step. You think about every time there's a, there's a, um, a natural... De- calamity like the tsunami in Phuket some years ago. Um, I have a young cousin who was on the beach and left the beach four hours before the tsunami hit. And he could have been there. And somebody, when he was leaving, probably arrived there. And you don't know. When you think about that, you feel, ah, you know, the fact that we're here is a miracle. It really is. If we have 60 people in this room now, it means that 60 of us at different times on this planet popped into a life, and the 60 of us that are here so far have not been hit by a car or stricken by a fatal illness or succumbed to something else and had enough exposure to Dharma to have ignited in their mind the desire to do this and had the wherewithal to come and all their flights landed. And they all, it's a miracle that we're here because it could have been otherwise. There are billions of permutations and combinations of things that could have happened. When I think about that, you think, wow, you know. Um, when I think that the appeal of Mary Oliver type poems that call the attention to what are we going to do with this one wild and precious life is really, we could have not had it at any time. This is the only day we have today. 
sometimes if I'm having a drowsy day, certainly on a meditation retreat, or it's an, if I'm having a grumbly day in my mind, I say, wow, you're missing today. I think that the idea is not to miss today. One of my teachers at some point said to me, it's your life, Sylvia, don't miss it. And any time that the mind is absorbed in one of those afflictive stories and going over it and over it and over it, it's not awake now. The three-year-old child of a friend of mine asked him one morning, when decades ago, when she was um, three years old, of a morning she got up and came into his bedroom and said, you know when you get up in the morning... You were sleeping, and then you're up? He said, yeah. She said, can you get, once you're up, can you get more up than up? And that's really what we're trying to do here. We are trying to get more up than up. If we realized every single day that the fact that we're here is a miracle, if we realized every single day that the, getting through the day and coming through it and, and that all the people that we care about are well is a miracle, it's a great blessing if you wanted to. Not a miracle, but it's a great blessing. A miracle is something outside of natural. But that we can fix our minds to incline in the direction of loving and that that could come back for us and keep us... Um, at ease in our life, so that we end it saying thank you and live it saying thank you. Every time I tell one of those stories, tell that story, I think I told you the other day about somebody whose final Zen utterance was, thank you very much, I have no complaints. And I would like to have it not as my final utterance, I'd like to have it as my routine utterance. I was thinking today, at um, lunchtime, thinking about that particular phrase, about no complaints, uh, that I lived for a while in the Midwest, and uh, it was a, a common habit that you'd meet somebody and say, oh, you know, hello, Tom, how are you? And Tom would say, can't complain. And that was, that, that, yeah, I don't know what Tom meant, any of the Toms that said can't complain, but I think it's a very good piece of dharma can't complain because if I did I would be making something that's not good already worse you know by complaining about it this afternoon when we sat together earlier this afternoon and I did that kind of pep talk about really continuity of practice and then People reported back that that was good, the pep talks. I'm giving you again the pep talk. Because I want to say that one way of con continuity of practice is seriously devoting yourself to the practice of the repetition of blessings. That's a particular technical thing that we are doing here that you don't get a chance to do in your whole life. I don't go around in my whole life blessing all day long with phrases. You have to drive, you have to think, you have to transact business, you have to teach. It's not in my mind in that technical form. But it is in my mind to watch for my mind falling into a grumbling state and a complaining state and then responding to it with a kindness to myself. May I meet this moment fully, may I meet it as a friend, which is both the instruction for what I want to do and the my what I anticipate will be the result of this practice, that I will be able to meet moments fully and as a friend until the end. So I really want to do that. This is a reprise of the pep talk. I think it's wonderful to be here quietly and you can be singing your phrases to yourself, saying them to yourself as much as you can. And when you're not, in the moments that you're just walking or just being or just savoring the taste of the food, when you feel a grumble, any kind of a grumble, any kind of a hindrance arising in your mind, go ding-dong, 
May I meet this moment fully. May I meet it as a friend. When I was standing on that line and thinking to myself, they should have been nicer to me, they should have been more respectful, they shouldn't have given me this, you know, this recorded announcement is nonsense, it's just irritable, irritating, I should write to the company. Or I, I all of a sudden thought to myself, Noemi is dying, and I'm feeling annoyed because I'm put out about my flight. That's really ridiculous. That's really, it's embarrassing. What are you doing, Sylvia? But then you think, well, I'm in pain. Okay. May I meet this moment fully? May I meet it as a friend? Everything gets forgiven in the end. I want to end by reading you a poem just because I like this poem so much and because it's uh, a favorite poem of mine having to do with the practice, Noemi's practice of making the mind big enough so that everything is just fine. You might know it. It's also by my favorite poet, Billy Collins. The name of this poem is another reason why I don't keep a gun in the house. (laughs) The neighbor's dog will not stop barking. He is barking the same high rhythmic bark that he barks every time they leave the house. They must switch him on, on their way out. The neighbor's dog will not stop barking. I close all the windows in the house and put on a Beethoven symphony full blast, but I can still hear him muffled under the music, barking, barking, barking. And now I can see him sitting in the orchestra, his head raised confidently as if Beethoven had included a part for barking dog. When the record finally ends, he's still barking sitting there in the oboe section, barking, his eyes fixed on the conductor who is entreating him with his baton while the other musicians listen in respectful silence to the famous barking dog solo, (laughs) the endless coda that first established Beethoven as an innovative genius. (laughs) Keep in mind that in spite, not in spite of, with all the exhortations for carry on, continuity, really do it, really do it, that I've been doing this afternoon, keep in mind that what you're practicing is loving everybody. This is not supposed to be grim. You could all smile. <laughs> Don't smile at each other because it, it, it distracts other people. But smile. Have a good time. Thank you.